0: Good morning. Let's find our seats and open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, for the gift of your Word and for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for men like Peter exhibit so clearly the difference between life before and life after redemption. Thank you that you take flawed men, flawed women, and you allow us, you give us the privilege of serving you. And this morning as we come to this, we pray that you would illumine our hearts, that we would see the beauty of your word, the the beauty of, of what you have put into place for us, that we may be transformed into the image of your beloved Son. Help us to see him this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we, we began our study here in 2 Peter. We looked at the uh, introduction to the book, and we looked at the greeting, which is in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1. Today, what we're going to try, I hope to accomplish, is that we will go through, and we'll get through about the first half. We're going to do through through, uh, verse 11 this morning, because the first 11 verses of this chapter talk about a particular process without actually using the term. So let's read the first 11 verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. "...through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence." and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling in choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied. To you. Now, this first half of this chapter is all about a particular process. It's a process that every believer goes through after conversion. So, when a person believes they have been predestined, they have been called, they have been justified, and then what happens after justification? You are sanctified. And what is the idea of sanctification? Big word, what does it mean? Okay, so actually got two definitions out of there. It's the process of being made holy and the process of becoming more like Christ. And so the idea, and both of those are correct. Now, we have been made holy Right? That is the idea of justification. Justification is a judicial action. God puts down the gavel as judge and declares us not guilty. Right? We're not guilty. Why? That's right. The blood of Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin. Right? The great exchange, Jesus takes on our sin, and in return, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's counted to our account. And so the idea here is that positionally, we are as holy as we're ever going to be. We've been made holy. Our sins have been wiped away. Wiped away because they've been atoned for, right? They've been paid, and the penalty has been paid. Nothing swept under the carpet. All right? Your sin, my sin, has been paid for by Christ. And that is something that we ought to be dwelling on regularly. The idea of a Christian waiting for the other shoe to fall... Waiting somehow that you know that God's just waiting to bring the cosmic hammer down onto me. I will suffer consequences for sin. I do. I need to. But I never suffer all of the consequences that I deserve. And so again, this idea here of sanctification is yes, we've been made holy, and there's a uh, process by which. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. Now, that is what the first half of this chapter is all about, and Peter never uses the word. And so, last week, when we looked at the introduction, and again, we tend to blow through introductions, right? Hi. Okay, maybe you can blow through hello. But not Peter, not when you get into here, because in verse 1, we have the beginning of the sanctification process. It is initiated by God. It is not initiated by us. Now, we all get that, right? And so here, in the very beginning... When he greets his audience to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, remember that when we looked at that, you've received this faith. That is a passive action. We don't do anything for that. We don't initiate that. We have received. It has been granted to us. It has been bestowed upon us. And so the idea here is that faith originally comes from God. It is not something that you and I gin up. And so because it has been given to us by God, that has initiated the process. That's why Paul, in Philippians 1.6, can tell the Philippians, for I am convinced, right, that he who began a good work in you, who began the work? He did. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so the idea that what God has started, he is going to finish, and praise God for that, right? If we could lose our salvation, we would. Who in here would be able to somehow magically gin up obedience in order to maintain salvation? None of us would. We wouldn't get out of day one So again, he has begun that good work. And it's not just, so now, it's begun, we are being conformed into the image of Christ, we're being transformed into his image, I think that's uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and do we reach that perfection in this life? No, we're not going to get there, not in this life, but... If you go to 1 John 3, 2, we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right? We don't know what we're going to be like, but that day is coming. And so this idea here, sanctification, being transformed into the image of Christ is one of the proofs of redemption. If you have, and we're going to see this here in our passage this morning, you have to ends of a spectrum. You have those who are being changed into the image of Christ. You can see the work and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in this individual over time. Whereas formerly, they were bound in certain sinful habits. And they're being, they're, they're being freed from those, and it's being replaced with godliness. And so you have those who are being transformed, and then you have those who are not. The idea of sanctification is that that is proof of the the work of God in our hearts. And you should be able to look at yourself... If you really want to get an evaluation of that, don't ask yourself. Ask someone who knows you well, and they will be able to tell you whether or not, you know what, I see the work of God in you. With some of our children, it's become pretty evident when, when they are redeemed. There were certain habits that were present and home is always one of those places where you get to see that the most, right? And so you can see the work of Christ. If you look at Romans 8, 29, and 30, and, and, and Paul goes through that, uh, that chain, you, you have those, who, those he, whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are all in the past tense. Have, have, have I been glorified? Well, uh, no. yes and no. Right? I'm here. I am not in the final state in which I will be. But it is so certain that that is going to happen that God refers to it in the past tense. That's how certain it is. Which again... Is a pretty cool thing when you think about it. So, the idea here, sanctification begins with God. So let's pick up in verse 3. Verse 3 is actually a continuation. It's the same sentence as in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You're going to see here divinity. You're, there is Divine is a word that's used twice, but it's actually, again, kind of referenced a third time. So you have God's divine power. That's actually referring back to Jesus when the his there refers to Christ. His divine power. Power has done what? Has granted to us. Now, this idea of granting to, again, this is being bestowed upon. This is being initiated by God, not by us. And so, what has been granted to us? In fact, it's a perfect passive participle. Now, you guys would look at that and go, all right, E-I-E-I-O. Here's the idea of perfect passive. Passive meaning who's the actor? Am I the actor when it's a passive voice? No, something is being done to me. The perfect tense is the idea this is something that has occurred in the past but has continuing effect through time. So this is something that has happened in the past. So What has been granted to me has been granted to me in the past, but its effect carries on. And so again, done in the past by God on my behalf. And what has been granted to us? Everything. Now, what does everything mean? It means everything. Now does that mean that my bank account is measured in 12 digits? No. Because what is what is it that I need? Believe it or not, I don't need a huge bank account. Okay, he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now let's put that What does that mean? Okay, so he gives us the tools by which we are commanded to give by, to live by. His divine power. Now, we, we touched on this last week. But again, I want to anchor it in your minds. Because it needs to be anchored in mine as well. Remember, this is talking about, when you talk about his divine power, we're talking about his grace. Grace is not merely unmerited favor. That's what we tend, that's how we tend to think of it, right? Grace is also his power. Remember, go back to second Corinthians twelve. Paul has gone through, he's talked about all these things in chapter eleven, all of these things that he has suffered on behalf of of the name and on behalf of the ministry of Christ. He's taken up into the third heaven and to void, being uh, caught up in pride and having his head puffed up, he's given a thorn in the flesh. Something, a messenger from Satan to torment him. In concerning that thorn, three times he asked God to take it away. And God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Paul, you need this. You need this in order to remind you of who you are, and you need this so that you can be reminded of who I am. And so, Paul, it's a means by which you're going to be humbled And yet, at the same time as you are being brought low, you are also being given what you need in order to handle these things in a righteous fashion. That's the idea of life and godliness. If you want to think about godliness, you can think of godlikeness. Those communicable attributes of God. Now, since some of you are giving me a look, we need to talk about that just real briefly. Remember that God has incommunicable those things that cannot be given to another and communicable those that can. anne Right, you're getting ahead of me there a little bit. We're going to get there. (laughs) No, and so the idea here, uh, okay, so back to this communicable and incommunicable. There are certain things about God that are true of God and God alone. What are some things that are true of God alone? He's sovereign. Okay, holy, we got to hold on to that one. Because we're commanded to be holy. So see, so now here again, what are the things about God that are unique entirely about him? Okay, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He cannot sin. Now again, we're going to get to that point too. He cannot lie. He is timeless. He is... Um, all wise, those are things, so his, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, those are things that are true of him and him alone. You and I will never be those things, right? Yet, on the other hand, there are those attributes of God, those characteristics of God that are going to become ours, and in fact, they should be becoming ours now. That's the whole idea of sanctification. So the idea was brought up of holiness. Several times in the Bible, we are commanded to be what? Holy, as I am holy. In this life, so the question is, how can we be truly holy when we are truly sinners? In this life, yes, that is something that we are never going to attain in this life, perfect holiness. Yet the day is coming when we are going to be like Jesus, but we're going to see him as he is, and we're going to live in a place where there is never again going to be sin. We are going to be holy. Okay? So again, these are things, that is one of those things about God, that's true of God, that is becoming true in us. We should be becoming more and more like him in holiness. I don't follow after the things that I used to because those are sinful, right? And so the holiness should be becoming more and more true of me and my sinfulness should be becoming less and less true, That's the idea of being sanctified. That's the idea of being transformed and being conformed to his image. That's the idea here. Everything that we need, if you want to talk about, all right, how is it that I'm going to please God? How is it that I'm going to obey him in a given situation? That's been granted to you. Have you ever thought that, have you ever, you realize right in the New Testament that there's no checklist, right? There's nothing whereby you go through and you say, okay, I've got, I've got these 15 different um, facets of the situation that I'm in. See, we tend to look at life like we're looking at a recipe. And if I can do this, 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 and this, then at the end of that, I'm going to get this particular outcome. God doesn't give us that. He doesn't give us recipes. He gives us principles. How do I take these principles and then apply them to the situations of life? So, for instance, God has given us the principle of putting another's interests ahead of my own. What does that look like? Yesterday, some people came over to our house and helped us move. They took time out from their schedule, things that they could have been doing. They could have been working around their own house. They could have been working on their own property, and yet they came over to help us because we had a need. They put our interests ahead of their own. That happens frequently. And so here again, you have a principle that can get applied in all kinds of different ways. That's why God has given us those. The knowledge of principles, I just gave away the word, understanding principles would, would constitute what? That's knowledge. What is putting that knowledge into practice? It's, that's wisdom, exactly. That's, no, that's, that's understanding how to take this principle and now apply it over to these situations. It's what biblical counseling is all about. Right? There's an issue in life. There's there's an issue with a relationship. God's Word, because God has given us everything, He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So when I have an issue with a relationship, God's Word has truth to speak into how to deal with that relationship. You will find biblical counseling to be effective to the degree that you're willing to be obedient. If you're willing to hear what God has to say and put it into practice, you will find yourself being sanctified. And you will find that you have the things that you need pertaining to life and to godliness. So when David talks about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, what does that mean, I shall not want? I have everything that I need. I have no lack. That's what this is saying. I have no lack. God has granted to me everything that I need pertaining to life and godliness. No exceptions. That means that any situation that I am in I have the ability, by using the principles in God's Word, to act in a way that brings glory to Him because I'm doing what He says. Any questions with that, Sam? Yes, so Sam's point, this is the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. No secrets. That's right. So Sam's point is, you don't have to go anywhere else in order to get this. This is not an issue, and there is never an issue. That's worth repeating a few times. There is never an issue in life where you need Jesus plus something else, where you need God's Word plus something else. Not, re- not relating to godliness. Gunnar, you got a question? Okay, so Gunner's point is, is that when Jesus said, it is finished, everything regarding redemption was wrapped up, right? Now, what is different about salvation for you and me from somebody who lived before Christ? Yeah, they didn't get the Holy Spirit indwelling like we do. God lives in us. We have his presence. We have his word. We have everything that we need. Pardon me? We have his strength. And again, his divine power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that accomplishes everything else, all of that is granted, we have access to that. Andrew, you had a question? How would I answer that? So the so the question is, how how would I respond to someone who says, "Well, you need something else. You need to be slain in the spirit. You need a second baptism. You need some other uh, something else from God." What does the text say? I have everything that I need pertaining to life and godliness, everything. And so again, there's no. Now, I don't need to be slain in the spirit. I do need to be filled with the Spirit, right? And again, what is the idea of being filled with the Spirit? We're under His control. We're under the domination of the Spirit. The Spirit is controlling how I think. And so again, my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions are being submitted to God to Christ. And so, I'm taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And as a result of that, right, the more that I am dominated by the Spirit, the more I'm going to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Notice again that in Ephesians, when it talks about the fruit of, excuse me, that's Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, It's not the fruits, plural, plural, right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? All of those things become more and more evident in the life of one who is being dominated, who is under the control of the Holy Spirit. Vitaly, you had your hand up. Okay, so the question is, uh, we've been talking about the spiritual aspects of life and godliness. Is there a correlation with the physical aspects of life? Am I promised in this certain things physically? No. No. Look, I, so you're not going to get the prosperity gospel out of this, okay? You're not going to get there. You're not going to get there. You know, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and, and just, <laughs> to use my word, peachy, all right? That's not the, that is not the case. That's why you need to go over and look at Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 does talk about, there are some things in Hebrews 11 where you had people who were able to do incredible things because God had that for them. Yet at the same time, what is also present there in Hebrews 11? There's not the high mountaintop of, you know, these these great and mighty things that people were able to do in different situations. There's also incredible what? suffering. Incredible suffering. Was God faithful to Joseph while he's in prison for acting in a righteous fashion? He was innocent of the, of the crime for which he was accused. Was God faithful to him? Yes, he was. Was God faithful to Paul? Five times of the Jews, I received the 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Shipwrecked. Stoned. All of those things. At the end of Galatians, you know, he talks about, from henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was God faithful to Paul? Yeah, he was. Andrew. Okay, so the question is perhaps it's not talking about uh, the prosperity gospel. Perhaps it's talking about just the things that we need for daily provision. Now, there's plenty of other passages that, that apply to that, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. You know, you're, co- you're covering your, your food. You know, the things that you need will be provided for you, to you. And the fact of the matter is, every one of us in here this morning is experiencing that. Did anybody sleep in their car last night? Everybody in here had a roof over their head. Anybody in here haven't eaten for a week because you don't have access to food? fact of the matter is, God's providing what we need. And in abundance, right? And far more. We moved into the other side. Um, Joe and Samantha have been living in the the cottage, the apartment, the granny flat. So now they're moved over into the big house and Carolyn and I have moved over into the granny flat. And I'm trying to take clothes from a closet, a big walk-in closet, and now fit them into a smaller closet. In my mind's eye, I'm looking at that closet right now. I have a number of suits. I got rid of a bunch of shirts because I can't wear them. Not because I can't fit in them. It's because there's not enough days in a week. There's not enough days in a month. I have more than what I need. And so... God does provide what we need, right, Brian? So Brian's point is that life and godliness are more synonymous in the context as opposed to being separated where, you know, one is dealing with our physical provision and the other is dealing with our spiritual provision. What's, what he's driving here, remember that the overall context of the book, right? Chapter 2 is going to talk specifically and extensively about false teachers, a false gospel, one of the evidences of someone who is the real deal is they are godly. They act in a godlike fashion. That, again, is part of the evidence of the work of Christ in their life. So when you look at somebody, and again, we're going to get down into this here, you have those where progress is evident. And you're going to have others who... They spout all kinds of things, yet when the rubber meets the road, there's nothing. That's all it is, is talk. There's no action to back it up. So he's given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Now that transformation is under an umbrella. It's it's through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and you could actually put in here his own excellence. This word excellence is, is, a, is a Peter word. He's the one who uses this the most. The idea of excellence is, it's, it's actually a pagan term. And it, it talks about the incredible virtue. Um, I think in your notes I've got in here, it's heroic Fidelity. So you can think of um, Horatius at the bridge. Here's a guy. He's supposed to hold the bridge. There's a bunch of bad guys coming. And Horatius doesn't cut and run, he defends the bridge, even to death. He stays at it, he's faithful. He is true. And so this idea here of the, the Greeks would look at that and they you know they would say that this is a paragon of virtue. This is excellence. Peter takes that term and says, now we're going to take that and we're going to apply it over here to spirituality. The idea here, Christ was excellent in the garden. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. The idea here is that Jesus laid himself out all the way. He didn't hold anything back. And so if you want to talk about someone taking something to the nth degree in order to accomplish what God wanted to be accomplished, that's Christ. That's Jesus. And so that's the idea of his utter moral superiority. He's called us by that. For by these... He's granted to us again. This is something else that is being given to us, and this granted is also a perfect passive. So it's something that's happened in the past with lingering, with, with ongoing effect. For by these, he, Christ, has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Precious, by the way, is another Peter word. You'll find it uh, several times in 1 Peter. So that by them you may come partakers of the divine nature. So you have divine power, you have divine promises. Now you have, we are made partakers of the divine nature. Now chew on that for just a second. Here, we have not, we're not just being made like him. It is, we are partaking. We are, the, the word here actually is the same word that's used for fellowship or partner. We have been made a partner with this, with the divine nature. And so here again, you have these things just being heaped and heaped. I have everything that I need in order to live in a godly fashion, and in fact, I'm being made a partner with Christ in the divine nature. What's the immediate effect? By being made a partaker of the divine nature, we've escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. This idea of corruption is the idea of a a, a dead animal, a rotting, dead animal. We've been set free from that, and we've escaped that. Emery. So Amory's point is, it's like uh, there's a giant extension cord that's coming down from God to us, and we, and if we are plugged into that, we are basically having the power of God working through us. That's actually a pretty good analogy. You know, you don't think of the Holy Spirit as electricity, but the idea is, is that the way electricity works is that it comes from a source, it comes through something to accomplish work. the idea of playing a tape and it wouldn't come on and, and then she feels that, well, it's not connected. You plug it into power and, and, and here, comes, here comes the music. All right, so sanctification begins with God and it takes us and moves us from where we are to where we need to be. So that's God's side of sanctification. Do we have a side? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have everything. God has given us everything. Now, what am I going to do with it? Now, there is a habit on behalf of some where I am going to kick it into neutral, and I am just going to coast. Peter would take great exception to that concept. And he does it in this way, verse 5. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence. Now this applying all diligence is an idiom. And it basically means you put forth everything into this. This is maximum effort. This is um, very intentional. The Christian life is not uh, something that you just kind of float along with. It is very intentional. And this idea here is, you put forth everything into this. So when you look at an athlete who is preparing for a particular event, do they start training for that event three days before it's going to happen? No. They're training for weeks, months, years. You'll run into people who are training for the Olympic Games eight years from now. And what, and what is part of their training? Do they pay attention to their diet? Yeah, they do. In fact, they'll deny themselves certain things because it's going to cost them something that they don't want to pay. It inhibits their preparation. And so they cut out those things that are going to drag them down or divert them or distract them from a stated goal that's in front. That's what Peter is talking about here. That is to be our mindset. It is, you, you, in fact, isn't that in uh, Hebrews 12? Laying aside every distraction to run the race that has been set before us? It's that very idea. That's what Peter's getting at here. Applying all diligence. Now you're going to start here, he's going to use now, he's going to start kind of a ladder, except the ladders. Rather than thinking of it as a ladder, think of it more as the piers that are supporting a a large building. All right? So that that way, you can't have five of them and skip out on two. The idea here is it's not that I'm going to attain this one and then I'm going to move on to the next. It's not that way. This is you're working on a broad front here. It begins with faith. What's faith? Nutshell, what's faith? Trust, belief. When you talk about biblical belief, what is biblical belief evidenced by Every one of you, by the way, did this this morning. I was watching you. In fact, I don't need to watch you because I know this is true because I've seen you do it before. You're looking at me like, what in the world are you talking about? Okay? Y'all are sitting in nice brand new chairs, right? Which one of you conducted any kind of an engineering analysis of your chair to see if it would hold you before you sat down in it? You did not. I wanted to make sure it was there. I have a- okay, so she says she... Okay, now looking to make sure it's there is not... Okay, so she wants to make sure nobody's going to pull her chair out from underneath her. And, and I don't think there's anybody here with, to do that, but now that you mention it, I'll be looking to do it for you. Okay, the idea here is that nobody looked at it and, okay, I wonder, hang on a sec. I hate the tape. Nobody did that, right? Y'all came in, you didn't even look at it, other than to make sure you were going to hit on one and not bridging two, all right? and you just sat down. That's the idea of faith. That's the idea of belief. Belief is going to hold me, therefore I'm going to act on it. Biblical belief is always accompanied by action. Gunner. (laughs) So, the idea again is that biblical belief always results in action. So, to your faith. Faith is evidenced by James. According to James, faith is evidenced by what? Works. I will show you my faith by my works. I'm not working my way into heaven, but saving faith results in that because that's the evidence of the faith. So, To your faith, supply. Supply is the command. This is where we are. So, yes, we are. The the sanctification process begins with God. Now, how do I get involved? Because I am applying maximum effort. I am, uh, I have a goal in mind, and everything in my life is directed to this goal. And that goal is to be that I'm being made more and more into the image of Christ. That's it. So everything else that distracts from that gets excised. It gets cut. Because those things are what? They're distractions. And so, to this goal, of being godly to your faith supply moral excellence that is the very same word that was used to refer to Christ the very same way in which Jesus had that laser fo- you know. <laughs> he wouldn't eat what did he say about that I have bread that you know nothing of. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what drives him. That is what sustains him. It's all about serving the Lord. Everything is about that. And by the way, that's not... Paul talks about that. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Whether you eat, whether you drink, that's all to the glory of God. And so that same type of excellence, that same type of, of single-mindedness that Jesus had, that is what we are to have. So think about that for a moment. As you hear that, what, what comes into your mind? I can tell you what comes into mind. Boy, this over here, I'll bet that's a distraction. The idea again is focused intentionality of godliness. So, moral excellence. Don't stop there. In your moral excellence, knowledge. The more we study, the longer we live, we we understand and we know God more and more, don't we? You never stop with that. In your knowledge, self-control. Now think of self-control in this way. Self-control is how you deal with pleasure. If you like to eat, can that, can that uh, pleasure in eating become sinful? Yes, it can. How's that evidenced? Gluttony. Is leisure pleasurable? Sure. Is that supposed to characterize my life? If I'm focused on leisure, seems to me that leisure, is going to be a significant distractor from moral excellence. Now, leisure or, or, or pleasure can be something that's just a good thing and I'm, I'm wanting too much of it. It can also deal with sin. So remember in Hebrews 11 where it talks about Moses, Moses chose to endure affliction with the children of Israel rather than to enjoy what? What? the passing pleasures of sin. So again, that can also deal with temptation. The point is is that self-control, that's talking about how I deal with the things that are pleasant in life. Now to that self-control, I'm also to add perseverance. Now perseverance, that is how I deal with the pains of life, with the sufferings of life. Perseverance is hupomeno, and it's again, it's the backpacking term. I'm keeping my shoulder under the load, except it is not just that. I can keep my shoulder under the load, and believe me, I have. I've, I've, there have been a number of backpacking trips where, look, I can't stop until we get to the top. I can't make camp here I don't have everything that I'm going to need to make camp here, and so I have to get to the top, and it's just one foot in front of the other, and I'm not smiling, all right? It's not easy. It's difficult. Yet, the same word, endurance, that's why when you see the word endure and patient and persevere, these are all facets of hupomone or hupomeno. It's the same. The idea here is, though, is that it's used of Christ. That's where you go. In fact, flip back just a few pages to Hebrews chapter 12. The idea of perseverance is not just, it's it's not a downward look and just making sure that I get one foot in front of the other. Perseverance has the idea I have a forward look. I'm watching The end line. I'm looking at the end zone. I'm looking for the goal line. I'm looking for the end of the race. That's exactly used here of Christ. Start in verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. What's that doing? I'm getting rid of distractions so that I can stay focused on the course. And I, can, and, and I can keep going there. And let us run with endurance. There's our word there. The race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, there's our word, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Christ is on the cross, he's not focused on the misery and the anguish that he is enduring. His eye is forward. And what was set in front of him? The joy of a mission completed. The joy of a salvation obtained. He's looking at the end line, the finish line. And that colors his actions on the way. It colors his attitude. There's incredible suffering, yet I know that it's not pointless. If I'm in the midst of incredible suffering, why am I there? Biblically. Because God has placed me there. And that's where I need to be like Paul and not hold that at arm's length. I need to embrace that. This is what God has for me. And if God is putting me here, then what else is he giving me? He hasn't just given me the situation. What else does he give me? The grace in order to do what? The grace whereby I can have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not just that I can survive, but that I can go through this and I can, I can have my thoughts proper. I'm not discontented. I'm not bitter. I'm not despairing. I'm not any of those things because I have his grace and his, he's accomplishing his work in me and he's accomplishing his work through me. And so again, I am taking those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and moving forward. For if these... We're not done. In your perseverance, godliness... Again, the focus here on being like him and acting like him. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness, that's the, th- that's the love that we have for people who are like us, all right? It actually means love of the brothers, right? Filial, family love. These are the people that are like us. But it doesn't stop there either, does it? To your brotherly kindness, love. That's how you deal with the people who don't like you. That's when you sacrifice on their behalf, when you're going to get nothing in return. Because, again, who loved like that? Christ loved like that, right? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word useless is the idea of idleness, laziness, inactivity, coasting. Unfruitful is actually the idea, the word is fruit with an A in front of it. There's nothing there. Keep that in mind when we get to chapter 2, by the way, because that's one of the evidences of those who are a false teacher or those who have a false gospel. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now, we're running out of time, so i got to hit this quick. This is the idea. When you are applying all diligence, there is a confidence, and, and, and you're seeing the evidence of that diligence. I am being transformed into the image of Christ. I am increasing in godliness. And I see progressive growth. When you see progressive growth and the evidence of God working in you and the evidence of God working through you, that instills in you confidence, right? It instills in us assurance, I'm watching as these things are played out just as God says they will be. Those who don't do that, those who lack that growth, if you're a Christian and all of a sudden you're looking and going, you know, gee whiz, I'm I'm looking at the last 10 years and I don't see any real evidence of the of the of the work of Christ in me, or worse, one of the people you live with. Why is there no change in your behavior? Do you find it as easy to be confident and assured that I'm going to make it to the finish line when there's no evidence of, of that kind of work in my heart now. By the way, why should some people have that thought? Am I the real deal? Because I, so, I don't seem to see any evidence of it in my life. Should somebody be concerned about that? Yeah, they should. And what should it cause them to do? Yeah. Yeah. Am I the real deal? Because if I'm not, then I'd better figure out how to be it, right? Because otherwise, I'm facing God as judge rather than facing God as dad. Andrew? Okay, 2 Corinthians 13. All right. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. Do you see this, this, this thread carrying through here? Being diligent, being focused, concentrating on moral excellence. Again, being diligent. The idea here is very, it's very intentional. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Okay, so here's the thing. Do you want to avoid stumbling into error? Do you want to avoid falling away? I do. So, what do we do? You run the race intentionally, there's a finish line there. I'm going to make it to that finish line, and therefore, I'm going to be intentional about my Christianity. I'm going to be intentional about my sanctification. I'm going to be focused on my sanctification. And I'm going to start cutting away the things that hinder me from my sanctification. Stay on course. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. God has laid out a path for us and he's given us everything that we need in order to get from here to there and not just you know, reaching out at the last minute with a hand to try to grab the ribbon. That's Romans 8. In all these things we what? Overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I don't know about you I'm ready for 1030 because I have a heart that's full of gratitude and adoration for Christ he's given us everything let's pray Father, what an incredible thing that not only have we been rescued and we've been delivered, but you have given us everything that we need in order to demonstrate our love for you by obedience. You give us the grace that we need. You give us the encouragement. You've given us your Holy Spirit. We lack nothing. And the only reason that I fall short is because of my own unfaithfulness, my own giving up. And so, Father, forgive me for for falling short. Forgive me for um, not being as diligent as I ought to be. And so, Father, a kindle afresh that, that, that desire in my own heart and for those here that we would be focused on you, on your kingdom, on being made like you, on acting as you would act, on responding as you would respond to the situations of life in which you place us. Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign over everything. You know everything about us, and you know every situation that we are in. And we also know that you're faithful. Oh, God, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to demonstrate our adoration for you by our obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen.